Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. We are here today with Dr. Dale Bredesen. He is the author of The End of Alzheimer's, and we're going to discuss his newly released book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. Dr. Bredesen received his undergraduate degree from Caltech and his medical degree from Duke, uh, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. This is an important one. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, before we get into the new book, Let's just talk about Alzheimer's in general. I think a lot of people are confused about it. We hear in the space, especially in the paleoprimal space, a lot of people, you know, I think because of Dr. Perlmutter have referred to it as like type three diabetes. We we know, at least in my knowledge, people who are going through Alzheimer's or initially get hit with it if they adopt sometimes a ketogenic diet that could be helpful to light them back up a bit. There's so much to talk about here. How did you get into this particular niche topic? Yeah, so let me just put it in perspective for one moment. Uh, we're all suffering from the pandemic. The pandemic has killed, as you know, over 400,000 Americans. But for perspective, Alzheimer's of the currently living Americans, about 330 million of us or so, Alzheimer's will kill about 100 times as many as the pandemic has killed so far. So Alzheimer's itself is a pandemic. It is a trillion-dollar global problem uh, and, unfortunately, on the rise. And so, as you know, there has been no effective treatment. Unlike a virus where we can say, okay, we're going to get a vaccine or we're going to get an antiviral, it's a pretty well-worn path for dealing with viruses and bacteria, as you know. There is no such well-worn path for Alzheimer's, which is why I got interested in it. We wanted to understand the most fundamental nature of this because there has been no effective treatment. So we spent 30 years in the laboratory and published over 220 papers looking at what is the fundamental nature of this disease? Why are people having such problems dealing with it? We hear that it's misfolded protein and reactive oxygen species and prions, and as you said, type three diabetes and on and on and on. But none of these theories has ever led to an effective treatment. And so we've taken a very different approach and looked at what is actually driving the problem. And what's very interesting is what comes out of that, what comes directly from the lab data, is that this is a, a literally a, a fundamental insufficiency. Instead of an insufficiency of vitamin D, however, or something like that, you know, your vitamin C is too low, so you get scurvy. This is an insufficiency in a plasticity network. So your brain is literally looking at a whole set of things, just as the president of a country would be looking at, you know, should we build, are things good? Are we low enough in pollution? No wars, no inflation. We've got enough in the coffers. Let's build new relationships. That's literally what your brain is deciding when you have when you have too little supporting it, and that can be nutrients, hormones, it can be growth factors, it can be because the demand is too high because of inflammation, pathogens, toxins, poor vascular support. When that fundamental network is underserved, your brain actually makes a 
move to downsize. Basically, it says I can't operate this way, but I can operate at a smaller brain. And as long as you don't understand that and address it, you will continue to downsize. So as you know, there have been all sorts of theories. Alzheimer's is just about this. It's just about that. It's really uh, more complicated than that. It is about this system. And therefore, when you go about treating it and preventing it, you have to understand the system and target that system. Let me ask you a question. So it's going to seem maybe like a dumb one, but, you know, we think of Alzheimer's in terms of the symptoms, right? And and how it, the people that are dealing with it, right? The, you know, the, the grandfather that forgets that he shaved his face, he keeps shaving his face five times a day, you know, that kind of thing. Right. How do people die of it though? Then what's the cascade that leads to it? Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Give me the, That's- give me the scenario, like the A to Z of like, first you get Alzheimer's da, 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 and then how does it end up in death? That's a great point, actually, because, yeah, why would that your brain downsizing ultimately lead you to death? So what happens is if you don't understand what's actually causing it, then you continue to have the exposure to whatever those things are. And it's typically over 10 different things that are all contributing. You continue to downsize, downsize, downsize. You lose synapses. You lose brain support. Your brain literally shrinks until, as you know, You're not able to care for yourself. So not only do you lose the ability to make new memories, but as you know, you begin to lose the old memories. And now you lose the programs that you use to care for yourself. Ultimately, you typically die either from infections. You can get infected. You can get pneumonia. You can get bladder infections, on and on. Or you die. Is that from related pain. to the brain? Like, how would pneumonia be related to Alzheimer's? You know, they don't seem connected. Right. To me. I'm just trying to. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're connected in a couple of ways. Number one, you're, of course, this is a systemic illness where your immune system is affected as well. But Ooh, number okay, two. Hold on. I did not know that. So that, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Well, how is it that the immune system is affected by this downgrading of the brain? Yeah, good point. So in fact, let's go back to COVID-19. So COVID-19, what's the big problem? The big problem is we have this cytokine storm where you have what's killing people with COVID-19 is that you have the innate immune system, which is producing the cytokines, which is responding in a non-specific way to threat and to insult. And you don't have enough of the adaptive system that's actually targeting the virus itself and clearing this out. So you continue to have this, again, cytokine storm. What, all, what happens in Alzheimer's is very much the same thing. In this case, though, it's over years instead of weeks. So it's cytokine drizzle. So you have this innate immune system that is continuing to be active, trying to fight these insults, but you're not clearing those insults. And therefore, what happens is you continue to make this. And in fact, the amyloid that we associate pathologically with Alzheimer's disease is in fact part of the innate immune system. So this is part of your response to these various pathogens and toxins. And there's a mismatch, again, just as there is in COVID-19, there's a mismatch between what's happening with the innate system and what's happening with the adaptive system. So typically people with Alzheimer's disease don't have perfect immune systems, don't have perfect responses. So that's one of the reasons that they develop these. Let me ask you, when you, when you say that the uh, people's Alzheimer's don't have perfect immune systems, is, is it, what, is it chicken egg? What, (laughs) what is it Alzheimer's and the downgrade weakened their immune system? Did they already have weakened immune systems which possibly brought it about both either? 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And so the answer is for so many of these chronic illnesses, there is a regenerative component here. So yes, it is both, but your chance of getting Alzheimer's does go up. So people have more likelihood of developing Alzheimer's when they have this mismatch in their immune systems. And so as an example, on average, people with Alzheimer's aren't as good at phagocytosis, at getting the antigen presentation that is needed to make this response. And at the same time, as I mentioned, they have this increase in overall inflammation. And you can measure that a number of ways. And there's some beautiful work uh, from Professor Fiala at UCLA showing that if you look at phagocytosis of amyloid, you, you can literally take some mononuclear cells, so-called PBMCs. These are peripheral blood mononuclear cells. These are essentially your circulating macrophages. Take a blood sample from someone with Alzheimer's and someone who's normal. And then what you do is you feed it with some amyloid. And guess what? The normal will actually snap this up. It'll eat it and get rid of it very quickly. The people with Alzheimer's do not do that. They're incapable of snapping this stuff up. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is they're focused on the inflammation part of the, of the disease. They are not able to deal with new pathogens like that. And if you actually look at the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease, what do you find? You find oral bacteria that have worked their way into the brains. You find herpes simplex, for example, in the brains. Oh HHV6A, which is another herpes family virus in okay, the brain. How does that, give me a rundown there, because you know we think yeah. about herpes as one and two, one Absolutely. being mouth, two being yep. genital. Are you yep. saying somehow it broke the blood-brain barrier and traveled up there? Like, I, I'm sorry, it sounds yeah. like a dumb way to ask, but you know, what's yeah. up with that? No, it's a really good point. You know, it's it's you know what you say is so interesting because it is you know it's breaking all the rules. We're we're understanding this idea of the blood brain barrier that we all were taught is so inviolable um, is in fact breached all the time, and it's breached by various bacteria from your mouth, things like P. gingivalis and F. nucleatum and Prevotella intermedia and T. denticola. These are all oral bacteria. So we've all been, of course, concerned about our gut microbiome for years now. Well, guess what? The oral microbiome and the sinus microbiome also very important. So if you have poor dentition and you've got a lot of uh, P. gingivalis around, which is one of the things associated with poor dentition, you are at clearly increased risk for cognitive decline. And so is it that a lot of people who... Um, have gotten Alzheimer's, had poor dental health? So it's it, yeah, absolutely. So, here, so here's the thing. There are dozens and dozens of these things that contribute to right. insults for which your brain's response to them is part of what we call Alzheimer's. So again, what, what people have vilified as, oh my gosh, there's this horrible amyloid. You got Alzheimer's, isn't this bad? Let's get rid of the amyloid. They've made antibodies to get rid of the amyloid. And of course, those trials have not shown that that's the way to go. At the very best, they can slow the decline a little bit, but they don't make people better and they don't stop the decline. So that you, because they're really missing how this works, this is a response. So yes, absolutely. Not only to those, but you mentioned herpes simplex. So you're right. Herpes simplex type one comes out on your lip typically, but where does it come from? Well, it comes from your fifth nerve. 
fifth cranial nerve. There's a ganglion up there in the fifth cranial nerve such that it can climb down and come out in your lip, but it can also go the other direction, go up and interact with your brain. And in fact, they find herpes simplex type one in the brains of many people with Alzheimer's. Now, to be fair, you find it in some people without Alzheimer's as well. So it's not black and white, but having it clearly is relevant. And that was shown by a beautiful study out of Taiwan several years ago, where people who developed recurrent lip herpes and treated it had a markedly lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. It was about 80% lower. So pretty striking impact compared to those who never treated it. You mean the people that had herpes simplex one knew they had it and what took regular Valtrex or at the at the beginning of ooh they felt something on their lip they started taking the L cyclovir whatever that's called Valtrex I know is the brand name yeah. for it so yeah. so are you saying that people who like treated their bouts of it uh, fared better uh, yes. Oh, okay. That's not interesting. (laughs) What a random study. Yep. They lowered their risk for getting subsequent Alzheimer's disease. So again, all of these things are related. And and so the classic- So so basically, I think uh, uh, what I'm hearing here is, hey, if you're out there and you have herpes simplex one, which I think is 80% of the population, but if you have it- and you're just like, ah, whatever, I'll let this cold sore just go through its thing. Maybe you'd think twice and go get the stuff. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And if you're getting it frequently, you might even want to be on suppressive therapy for a while. But for those of us who are getting it, you know, once a year, once every two years, whatever, like, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Go out and and once you start to develop it early on, uh, get suppressive therapy. And as you said, Valtrex is a good one. People use lysine. There are all sorts of ways to do this. But what you want to do is make it so that you don't have that ongoing repeated inflammation. Okay. Very interesting. Had no idea. Wow. Um, gosh, I have so many <laughs> questions for you. This topic is. Um, all right. Let's. Uh, hmm. Okay. There's obviously there's now I'm learning, right. There's so many different factors. Obviously yes. we at the primal blueprint are all about, Hey, optimize nutrients, immunity, mm-hmm. low carb brain health, getting rid of the offensive foods that are inflammatory because we know all of the crazy diseases that have at the base of it are just inflammatory. So, you know, a lot of our listeners already know like the basics to this kind of thing. Yeah. And, but, and by um, the way, ancestral yeah. health is a huge issue. And yes, you can argue that a lot of Alzheimer's is because we have broken our bond with ancestral health. We're, yes, we've absolutely. made a lot of crazy assumptions. Yeah, it's fine. Just as good to have processed food. Yeah, it's just as good to watch TV all day. I mean, just go on and on. Um, you know, don't worry about leaky gut. As you said, you know, eat inflammatory foods. These things all increase your risk for cognitive decline. Right. So aside from, hey, we're going to shape up this primal meat suit we're in and, and get it all optimized. Um, okay. Let's talk about the genetics of this. Cause I, I've, I've, I've had that genetic test, right. And I forget which one it is. I'm, I'm not an expert in that, that arena. And I have friends and they're like, okay, I have the thing that says I have more of a likelihood in all of the, is there been studies in the people that have gotten Alzheimer's died from it, had severe cases, I guess, have they all had that genetic marker that said that they were likely to have a problem with it. Not to say that we can't, uh, we don't have to upregulate those genes. We can do some things to prevent that. We know that, but do they all have it or is it just a mishmash? No. So that's a, so here's the thing there. They hear about the genetics of Alzheimer's. 95% of Alzheimer's is sporadic. 
And this is a little bit like heart disease. So in other words, only 5% of it do people have. It's three genes, APP, presenilin-1, presenilin-2. Those genes where if you have a mutation, you have familial Alzheimer's disease, but that's the uncommon one. And we're actually working with some people who have that right now. Uh, so the hope is that what we've used for the sporadics <clears throat> will work for these as well. We'll, you know, we'll see over time. But for 95% of us, the problem is not genetic. It, the genetics just gives you a risk. So you indicated you know, the common gene. And so the one that we all want to know, which is the common one, is ApoE4, which is for apolipoprotein E4. It's the epsilon 4 allele. All of us, for the, the original hominids back between 5 and 7 million years ago, when we saw the first hominid, these had ApoE44. 44 was all that existed. And so, of course, you get one copy from your mother, one copy from your father. Now, just 220,000 years ago, so in other words, after 96% of hominid evolution had already occurred, ApoE3 appeared, which is now the most common one. And for example, I checked myself, I'm a 3-3. That's kind of vanilla. That's what most of us are. And then just 80,000 years ago, ApoE2 appeared. Now, you, what you want to know is how many copies of ApoE4 do you have? Zero, one, or two? Those are the choices. If you have zero, which is about three quarters of Americans, then your chance during your lifetime for Alzheimer's, 9%. It's not huge, but it's not zero. If you have a single copy, your chance is 30%. So it goes up, obviously, from the 9%. And that's 75 million Americans, most of whom do not know it until they get Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is now a choice. If you want to not think about prevention, not think about early treatment, yeah, you can go get it. But virtually no one need get this today. If you just get on appropriate prevention or early reversal, you'll do just fine. And we've seen it again and again and again. We just finished a trial that showed the same thing. And if you have two copies, your chance is well over 50%. That's 7 million Americans with two copies. Okay. Um, All right. So, you know, I've spoken with brain peeps before. (laughs) And uh, yes, we know challenging one's brain, whether it's taking a new road home, reading a new book, learning a new thing. Yes, very important, right, for mental health. Do those things, are they related to Alzheimer's or is this more of a body health, what you're putting in, what you're doing kind of thing? Or does it also matter in terms of what we do with our brains? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, does that have any uh, fairing on Alzheimer's or just not really, maybe just in general with dementia or, you know, being bored in the brain? I don't, (laughs) I hope you understand where I'm going there. Yeah, absolutely. All of the above. So the critical piece is, you have a set of signals in your brain that are synaptoblastic. They are making and keeping synapses. You have a separate set of signals, including things like your genetics and things like inflammation and various organisms and stuff we've been talking about, that is synaptoclastic and that is literally pulling back. And so it is the balance of those things. And that balance is affected by all the things we've been talking about, by what toxins, if you've got mold in your home that's making uh, mycotoxins, that affects this balance. If you've got poor vascular flow, if you've got sleep apnea, 
All of these things affect us. And of course, these ancestral things that you've talked about absolutely impact this as well. Uh, one of the biggest impactors is sugar. Just walking around eating you know, uh, simple carbohydrates, one of the best ways. And in fact, I have in the first book, The End of Alzheimer's, I, I wrote a chapter on how to give yourself Alzheimer's. You want to give yourself Alzheimer's, you can do it pretty effectively by doing everything wrong and putting yourself on the wrong side. And so the, the, the analogy there is, is to osteoporosis. As you know, you have osteoblastic signaling from things like vitamin D and estradiol and, and you know, a healthy gut and all that sort of stuff. And you have osteoclastic signals from reducing your vitamin D and reducing your estradiol and having too much inflammation, all that sort of stuff. So that is the balance that is perturbed in osteoporosis. Alzheimer's is really synaptoporosis. Hmm. Yeah, so I have seen like uh, some some people in my family, one who didn't eat a lot of sugar, mm -hmm. the other who ate a lot of sugar, but they both ate sort of the same good meals. And one of them, you could see, started to have to stop midway in a sentence and yeah. not really, you know, it, it started to become concerning. And my first thing was, it's the freaking damn Ben and Jerry's every night. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like my first, my first thing was it's the goddamn sugar. I just know it. Um, yeah. Sugar's a ruiner. We know this. And you know, it's just to highlight that too, for everybody. I've said it before on the podcast, but you know, when I talk with people about cancer, right. And they do a pet scam and the, a pet scan and they're basically, you know, injecting you with a type of glucose to light up those cells that says everything you need to know, right. Cancer loves sugar. It yep. lights it up in your body. Um, and so, yeah, that's it. That's it. That needs to go away. And again, this high carb lifestyle, which of course ancestral is not, it's the opposite. And so, you know, we're all about this optimization. What else can we do? I mean, are you advocating, I'm assuming you'd advocate an ancestral paradigm. Um, are there some things though? I mean, you know, because the primal blueprint, we, we go on an ancestral model here. We're not about a lot of, you know, grains, real occasional dairy or occasional this, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty strict you know, higher fat, moderate protein, low carb type of paradigm. Is yep. there something else you suggest? Is is keto really necessary if you feel like you're at extra risk? Um, yeah. yeah, so you mentioned the what happens with a cancer scan, looking at PET scans, so the same thing, by the way. When you look at the brain, you inject glucose and you look at the brain and there is a signature of Alzheimer's disease which comes on about 10 years before you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And actually for people who have ApoE4, you can begin to see this signature even in the late 20s and early 30s sometimes. And here's what the signature is. You're unable to take up the glucose in the temporal region. So along, you know, running uh, horizontally along where your ear is and the parietal region, which is running vertically up behind your ear. So those regions of the brain are unable to utilize the glucose normally, even predestining your Alzheimer's itself, predating the Alzheimer's diagnosis. And so absolutely, part of what's happening when you're starting to have these problems you mentioned early with completing your sentences is that you do not have the energetic support that you need. So absolutely, ketosis is critical because as Stephen Kinane has shown, you need now to bridge that gap 
with ketosis. And of course, endogenous ketosis is the best way to go. But for those at the beginning, we recommend just start with exogenous ketosis. You have an energetic emergency in your brain when you are starting to have these symptoms. Then over the long haul, get yourself into endogenous ketosis so that you can bridge that gap. But yes, okay, I just want to I want to clarify for anyone listening. Yeah. So if you didn't understand that, he's saying that instead of like if you had symptoms right away and you're like, uh oh, you know, grandma's it's going down, uh, you would want to use exogenous ketones, meaning ones that you have to buy and swallow them, right? You know, or take them orally uh, to to get it kicked in before you can get your body in the mode to do it itself. Is that what you mean? Exactly. And so we'd like to see people between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate. So that's how much ketosis, which is mild ketosis. Or if you're going to use a breathalyzer like Biosense, for example, then we'd like to see you over seven, blowing over a seven on the ACEs score. So in other words, you have to have enough ketosis to make it so that you can support your brain's functions. Interesting. Um, now, I would say this too: Is it important to constantly be in a state of ketosis for these people? Can they kind of go in and out, or is this one of those things like traumatic brain injuries slash epilepsy, where no, you got to stay consistently in this realm? Yeah, it's a great point because, of course, this has been known for epilepsy for years and years. Um, and yes, we'd like to get you in most of the time. Um, there are people who cycle out once per week, which is fine, uh, especially for people who have a low BMI. So if you're very thin, you've got to be careful about doing the fasting part that's helpful for your ketosis. So yeah, absolutely. Liberalize once a week. And some people will even notice, oh yeah, when I slip out of ketosis, I'm not quite as sharp as when I'm in ketosis. So yeah, absolutely. That is part of it. And this is, again, this is a protocol. We developed something that we have a computer-based algorithm. It's called Recode for Reversal of Cognitive Decline. And you can look at all these parameters and people with their blood work to say, okay, here are the things that are actually driving your cognitive decline or your risk for decline. And we use a separate program called Precode for prevention of cognitive decline. And then you can look at all these and say, okay, here are the things that you actually have to do to get the best outcome. And people will say, well, wait a minute, hey, you know, diet alone is not going to cure Alzheimer's. No, not by itself. But the point is that it's part of an overall program. Why would you ignore the piece that actually requires the ketosis and actually addresses so many of the issues? And so, yes, it does start with a paleo approach, a ketotic uh, it's plant rich. It is high fiber because you are detoxing. You need that fiber for detoxification. And so, yeah, it's, you, know, you need the phytonutrients. You need the detox that you get from crucifers and things like that. So all of this is based on what is the biochemistry that drives cognitive decline. You're scaring the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, you should be very happy because you you never have to get this disease. Now that we no, I love, I love that message. Is. I love that message. We can all prevent this from happening to us, and we exactly. can help our loved ones possibly catch it before it even uh, turns into something. Yes, please don't wait. So, what do we? Um, you mentioned, uh, and I don't know if you've already mentioned it, but before we got on here, you're talking about a, a unique study, but I'm not sure yes. if you already covered it. 
Yes, thanks for asking about that. So all previous studies on Alzheimer's, as you know, have taken a, an approach where they predetermine. So you literally write down when you, know, when you go on clinicaltrials.gov and you enter your trial and say, okay, here's, here's the trial we're going to do. It's going to be with drug candidate X or Y or Z, or it's going to be we're going to use an instrument uh, and stimulate your brain. Whatever it is you're going to do, you predetermine a treatment. And if you think about it, that's actually backwards. What you want to do is to determine for each person why he or she has had the cognitive decline, and then you want to target those things with a precision medicine protocol. For one person, it's mostly about inflammation, maybe from P. gingivalis. For the next person, it's mostly about a mycotoxin. Toxins. For a third person, it's mostly about insulin resistance and glycotoxicity. For another person, it's because they had early menopause and didn't get uh, bioidentical hormone replacement, and on and on. And for many people, it's a combination of those things. So, what we said was okay, here's the first trial where we're going to flip the script, we're going to look at what's actually causing it for each person. And then we're going to target those. And I did this with three outstanding functional medicine physicians, Dr. Ann Hathaway uh, here in Marin County, California, uh, Dr. Kat Toops, who's over in the East Bay, and Dr. Deborah Gordon, who's up in Oregon. And just uh, just finished this. Results, very exciting. We're just getting these published. Uh, but I can say that they're unprecedented in terms of improving people who had cognitive decline. So we're very excited about that. Wow. This... Um... This research is important. Uh, what are some things that uh, we can all look out for for our parents or people getting older who, or, you know, I know it sometimes can happen earlier, but what are some of the initial things that would be red flags that we might not be aware of? Or can you just list a few things to look out for for us? Yeah, that is a great point because, you know, just as everybody knows when you turn 50, you should get a colonoscopy, but people don't realize when you turn 45 or if you're already older than 45, you should get a cognoscopy. You should look at a set of things, which includes blood testing, which includes a simple online cognitive assessment. And that's it. Unless you've got symptoms, if you have symptoms, please also get an MRI with volumetrics so you can see if you've got any hippocampal brain shrinkage, uh, which is critical. So pretty easy to do. And so when you see begin to see the early changes, they fall into two groups. About two-thirds of people who are going to get Alzheimer's start with an amnestic presentation. In other words, memory is the big problem, as you know. So people will say, yeah, you know, um, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, or I can't remember where I was yesterday. Or uh, you right, know. So it would be something sort of in the immediate, you know, not like five years ago, they can't remember. It would be yes. something soon. Okay. That's exactly right, because they often are very good at the long-term memory. So they'll say, yeah, I remember my first grade teacher, or I remember when I first got my driver's license, or one of those sorts of things, but they will not remember more recent things. Literally, their brain is unable to make and store the new memories. That's the thing that it gives up on earliest. And people have asked me, like, well, you know, well why would your brain do that as the first change? Well, think about it. You've learned so much. You can do very, very well for a long time. If I say to you, hey, do you want to wake up tomorrow morning and you don't remember how to speak or how to write or how to do your job? Or do you want to forget the friends rerun from tonight? That's an easy choice. And that's the same choice your brain is making. Now, the other group, about one third of people, their first problems 
Uh, and they're often the young ones, often in their 40s and 50s, 40s and even early. We see a lot of people in their early 50s who develop, are developing Alzheimer's disease, and they are having non-amnestic problems. So the typical things there are executive dysfunction, so problems with organizing, problems with face recognition, problems with word finding, problems with calculation. These are the ones who are losing their jobs very quickly because they can no longer do the sorts of things that they were doing for their jobs. And whereas memory in those people is not such a big problem early on, it does become later, but it's not the earliest one. So those are the sorts of things that begin to go that you should really kind of, that's a red flag, please get evaluated as soon as possible. Virtually everyone who's in these earliest stages does very, very well if you uncover the things that are driving it and you address those things. What else do we need to know? You're so immersed in this, but to the layperson, what are some things that are interesting or that we might not think of? You've already, you know, kind of laid some out here that shocked me earlier, but is there anything else you can think of that we need to look out for or a way to think about this um, that when you talk to people, you find them being like, oh, you know? Yes, yes. It's really interesting because the vast majority of doctors are not checking these things. And as you know, there's a lot of now on quantified self. So things you can do that you couldn't do 10 years ago. So, you know, Apple watches are out there and Oura rings are out there and Omron blood pressure cups are out there. And, you know, uh, looking at your own uh, genetics and microbiome, uh, continuous glucose monitoring, CGM, uh, really helpful. The ability to measure your own ketones. Uh, you can do that simply. In fact, with the uh, mentioned the Biosense breathalyzer is a nice one that's come out not too long ago. And I have no, uh, you know, I, I do, they're not, they don't pay me to say anything about this, but we've checked several of them and that one actually works pretty well. Uh, and so it's, I think it's kind of a breakthrough in this area. You don't have to prick your finger anymore. So the things so what's that, that, what's that one called again? It's called Biosense, B-I-O-S-E-N-S-E. Okay. Uh, so again, we're agnostic. Whatever helps, whatever works is what we're interested in doing. And one of the critical things that's not evaluated enough is nocturnal oxygenation. When we go to sleep at night, uh, our oxygen for many people drops. And, you know, again, this has happened with COVID-19. People are walking around with very low oxygenation, very low oxygen saturation. And unfortunately, when you go in and say, hey, I'm having trouble with my memory. Could you check me out? The doctor doesn't say, hey, I better look to see whether your oxygen is dropping at night. But that's something we can easily check. You can get an oximeter. You can borrow an oximeter from your doctor. Uh, you can do it on your Apple Watch. Uh, lots of ways to do that. There's a thing called Better, B-E-D-D-R, you can use as well. So lots of ways to check this. When you're sleeping at night, you should be between 96 and 98% oxygen saturation. If you're dropping into the 80s, and we see people even into the low 70s who had no idea they had this problem, then you need to have that addressed. And this may mean that you have some sleep apnea. Um, and it's not always just sleep apnea. There are other things uh, as well. It could be there are, you know, other things that you need to have evaluated. That is an important contributor to cognitive decline and one that can be addressed fairly readily for many people. So please check your so-called SpO2. And there was a nice paper a couple of years ago where researchers looked at 
the mean SpO2 while you're sleeping, your average for the night, and then compared it to the volumetrics on your MRI. And there was a direct correlation. As your oxygen is dropping at night, the size of your brain in specific nuclei, including the hippocampal area, which is so critical for Alzheimer's, is dropping uh, in concert with this decrease in oxygenation. So that's a critical one to know. And of course, you know about the gut microbiome, huge, very important for inflammation, very important for Parkinson's, very important for Alzheimer's, very important for depression, just go on and on and on. So everybody should know the status of their gut microbiome. And again, fairly easy to do now. Uh, there's a lot that we can do, and unfortunately, our doctors are not doing many of the things that they should be doing for our optimal cognition. Oh, I mean, I could talk all day about uninformed doctors, you know? Yes. <laughs> I mean, a good point. yeah, they don't know much about nutrition and what they do know. They learned in an hour in medical school. Hopefully, everyone listening to this podcast understands that possibly finding a paleo ancestral functional MD might be your best bet if you want a really comprehensive look at things. Absolutely. Um, fascinating work. So, uh, all right. In, in, in wrapping up, what's ahead here? I mean, w- well, let's talk about the book. So the program, is that more, um, your second book is more of the guide, I guess, to how to is, is, is that what we would say? Yeah, that's a great point. So the first book was called The End of Alzheimer's. It's now actually out in 32 different languages. Uh, and it's it really talked about the fact that you, you've got to reorient your thinking. There is a tremendous amount we can do. We've been told that there's nothing that could be done about Alzheimer's disease, nothing to prevent, reverse, or delay. That's absolutely wrong. We've shown it again and again and again. There are now over 5,000 people who are on the protocol that we developed. You do have to look at all these different things to know what's actually driving it, and then you've got to address those things. No big surprise. A lot of people after the first book said, hey, we want more details. You know, What are the URLs we go to, and where do we shop, and how do we find the right doctor, and how do we find the right health coach? all that sort of stuff. So I actually teamed up uh, with two people. Since I'm on the neuroscience side, I teamed up with Julie G, who herself is an APOE44, who actually was developing Alzheimer's and who's done extremely well and has a a wonderful site where there are over 3,000 people who are all APOE4 positive, who are all sharing information. And so she is a citizen scientist and user. And then my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, who is a functional medicine physician. So we have a clinician, a scientist, uh, and a citizen scientist. And so this was a very practical book. It has a handbook of here are the things to do. Here's where to go. Here's how you do this. And that just came out a few months ago. And then I have another one that's actually coming out this August, which is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. And it's wonderful because we have seven different people who had dramatic improvements who are doing very, very well. We have people who are now coming up on nine years on this protocol. I mean, these are people that would have been in a nursing home long ago uh, who write about what it was like to be told that they were going to die of Alzheimer's and then to get better and Mm -hmm. to be doing well even years later and how they continue to do this. So yeah, so it's a new day. We're really excited. This is 21st century medicine, which instead of being about what is the diagnosis is about why do you have it and addresses these things. And you're absolutely right. Paleo is a critical part of reversing the problems that we get from, unfortunately, our modern, uh, you know, our modern lifestyles. Amazing. <clears throat> Absolutely amazing work. So aside from your books, we'll put the links in the show notes. I know we can get them on Amazon and 
everywhere else books are available. What about working with you directly? Do you have a team of people? If someone's listening to this and they're like, oh my God, we need help. We need coaching. We We can't just read the book. Is there anything available in that arena? Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, So we've trained now over 1,750 physicians from 10 different countries and all over the U.S. in this protocol, which is called, as I mentioned, is called Recode. Uh, And um, these people, we actually just have a Recode 2.0 training that just came out recently. Uh, And so you can go on either mycognoscopy.com or you can go on drbredesen.com or on apollohealthco.com. So I work with Apollo, a group from Silicon Valley. Um, because we need to have appropriate software and appropriate algorithms for best outcomes. I mean, it's interesting. As you know, uh, Amazon knows where you're shopping every day. Google knows all about you. As they say, they know more about you than you do. Uh, And why is it that we haven't used the same sorts of approaches to get better outcomes for chronic complex illnesses like Alzheimer's? We've done it great for shopping, great for advertisement. We need to be using these same sorts of approaches for better outcomes for brain health. So excellent. Thank you so much for your work. Uh, this is incredible. It, 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 while it's frightening, it also is such good hope. Like you said, it doesn't need to happen. We can prevent it. And yep. we can also now uh, seemingly treat it at the early onset. Yes. Uh, what else would you like to leave our audience with before we, before we go? Yeah, so what I'd just like to say is, look, this is this is a pandemic. And in fact, we can have a major impact on reducing the global burden of dementia. So please, everybody, get on either prevention or early treatment, and let's really reduce the global burden of dementia. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And for everyone else, we will see you next week. Thanks for having me on. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.